0: john chapter 19 verse 38 to chapter 20 verse 18 after these things joseph of arimathea who was a disciple of jesus but secretly for fear of the jews asked pilate that he might take away the body of jesus and pilate gave him permission so he came and took away his body nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, In which no one had yet been laid so because of the jewish day of preparation since the tomb was close at hand they laid jesus there now on the first day of the week mary magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb and stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths laying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus head, not laying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Last week, I was in Chicago on a gray, rainy, windy day. And as I was flying out, an experience that maybe many of you have had if you've flown out on a day of bad weather, Uh, sort of a turbulent ride up going into these dark clouds. And then as soon as you emerge above the clouds, extremely bright sun, uh, a rich blue sky. And the other side uh, is completely different. And so from the perspective of the earth that day, it would seem as if the sun had gone away. Maybe uh, there is no sun, we just imagined it. Um, From the perspective of the earth, all we know is gloom and darkness. And yet the issue is not that the sun has gone anywhere, but something came between the sun and the earth, the clouds. Um, The Bible's description of the human story is that something has come between God and humanity. It's not that there is no God, although it could seem that way at times. It's not that God has gone away Although there are times of darkness, of difficulty, where it would seem as though God has just left us. And the picture in the Bible is not that God has gone away from us, but something has come between us. And some of the language that the Bible uses is sin and death. Maybe sin is too religious a term uh, and it would take too much time to unfold to really understand what it means. But today, since we're talking about resurrection, the concept of death that comes between people. It's There's a gloom to it. There's something awful about it. It casts a shadow over all things that then leaves us confused about all things, including whether or not there is a God, there is a future, there is hope, there are things worth living for. It's remarkable the kinds of impact that that could have on us. Well, the Easter story is meant to be an interruption in the human experience a pressing away of what has come between god and humanity where god is going to start to restore things which should change how we see things how we understand things so then when we don't see by faith we know the sun is still there um there are just clouds here i wasn't surprised when i got above the clouds and saw the sun because i now understand that uh, so there are times in our experience where it may feel, I don't know where God is, but once you understand the nature of how things work, um, we can know God is still there, even if I don't see him. And Easter is an important part in, in providing a certain confidence for us as we continue to struggle through our own difficulties and the difficulties of the world, that that when Jesus came and, and died but was raised, he radically changed things, But but the thing is, he didn't thoroughly change them all at once. That's the hard thing for us to grasp because the world still has echoes of all of its brokenness and we're told one day there will be a thorough renewal. But in the meantime, new creation has begun. Uh, With his coming out of the tomb, things have changed. that, That means there's a reorientation for us. So even if we face challenges, our lives can be seen differently, understood differently, live differently, and have a different impact. So what I want to talk about this morning from John's gospel is how Jesus enters this troubled world in order to make all things new. And so I'm just going to talk in two sections, first about his entering this troubled world, and then how he makes all things new. So regarding Jesus' entering the troubled world, we we heard the end of chapter 19 in John. Uh, After Jesus has been crucified, after he's been humiliated, after he's been mocked, we have the moment of his burial. And then chapter 20 is his first appearance on that first Sunday. Uh, An important detail in how the story is being told has to do with, with the order of things, because if you're familiar with John's Gospel, there are echoes of the creation story all throughout. The very beginning of John's Gospel makes clear he's establishing a connection with the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, that tells the story of God making all things. And therefore, in verse 42 of chapter 19, uh, he, he alludes to the Jewish day of preparation, preparing for the Sabbath, it's the sixth day. So Jesus is crucified on the sixth day, the final day, and since the beginning, we are to finish our work on the sixth day, and then rest on the seventh. And so in John's gospel, Jesus from the cross on the sixth day, as the afternoon is going on, cries out, it is finished. And then before the sunset, the Jewish custom was we would take them down. And there's even details here about they couldn't take him too far, so they needed to bury him in a garden nearby because of the Sabbath being observed. So chapter 19 gives us the sixth day, the day that Jesus dies. Chapter 20 gives us the first day of the week. And the seventh day is not mentioned here, but it's the Sabbath day. And so in the story, Jesus coming and finishing things, on the sixth day, and then starting things new on that first day of the week, a new week, a different week, a new creation week, we find that as we come out of chapter 19, there are signs of this broken world, that the world is not as it should be. Chapter 19 is finishing the story of Jesus's suffering and death. So even as you go into chapter 20, the setting is they're at a tomb while it's still dark. So darkness is important in John's telling of the story because that's the imagery of the world. We're dark, we're lost, we're confused, we don't see well. And now there's a tomb, which means we're reminded of death. So the the end of chapter 19 doesn't have the passion and the excitement of the previous part of chapter 19, the screaming crowds, the humiliation, the violence. We don't get those colorful pictures, but we get a tomb, we get death, we get... Um, the kinds of dynamics of this world in in chapter 19, verse 38, speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Why? Because he had fear. He feared the religious leaders um, might do to him what they did to Jesus. And then so Nicodemus in chapter 19, verse 39, also who had earlier come to Jesus by night. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's interested in what Jesus is saying, but he can't openly come and inquire. So he comes at night. So again, John is telling the story. He came in the darkness. And then if you go to John chapter three, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom. And so there's a, there, the, the story here is being told of darkness, of death, of, of a religion that's meant to bring life, but is causing fear and keeping people from seeking truth. In chapter 20 verse 11, there's Mary who's weeping. So here's somebody who loves Jesus and she's deeply impacted by this. She wasn't caught up in the anger of the crowd. We just need to make somebody pay. She wasn't part of the expedient Roman plan like Pontius Pilate. We just need to have somebody die so we can move on. She was one of those who loved and was experiencing this as tragedy. And so uh, there's also confusion here. In chapter 20, verse 2 and verse 13, Mary is so upset that it seems like through her love for Jesus, she just wants to come and be near him. So she visits the tomb, perhaps to honor him, to honor his memory, but there seems to be a longing to want to be close to him to hold on to what you can, he's no longer alive, but I wanna go to where he physically is. She's she's not letting go of that, she's holding on to that because she loves him. And so in verse two and 13 of chapter 20, she says twice, we don't know where they have laid him. It seems at this point the weeping is not the, the, the realization of his death, but the ripple of his death, That that everything happened in such a terrible way, but at least now I can visit and be near him. And then she shows up and he's gone. So a bad situation is, so they found another way perhaps to humiliate him. They just took him away. What's going on? So here she is weeping. So the whole scene has these elements that then John gives us as the narrator in chapter 20, verse nine. He says, as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead and, and that's an important thing in the New Testament, that prior to Jesus' coming, not simply to explain the Bible, not simply to fulfill it, not simply to uh, suffer and die, but, but through his rising and ascending and pouring out the Spirit, as the New Testament records, it was only then that the Bible started to make sense. Which is why in his day, there were all these controversies of what people couldn't put together because they had scriptures that seemed conflicting or not helpful, and now John is saying they did not yet understand the scripture. Jesus coming and rising actually creates an anchoring point for going back and understanding the story of what God is doing and how the scriptures are fulfilled in him, and so up until this moment, they're completely confused, and that confusion involves fear and weeping, so so John and Peter come running in the darkness when they hear that the tomb is empty, but we find later in chapter 19, they go back to locking themselves in a room. They're afraid they're going to be next. And so the context of this passage, um, even, if the, even if chapter 19 doesn't end dramatically, is all of the suffering, the brokenness of the world, the signs are there. And yet within it, there are signs that God has called his people to be different. And so the calling to Abraham's descendants is to be a light in this dark world, to be a light even to the nations. And so as the story is told, there are faithful Jews who keep the law. And so one of them uh, would be uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who um, is willing now publicly to come out and say, I want to take his body. I want to make sure his burial is honorable. We've just humiliated him. And so he's going to honor him. And so uh, in in uh, Nicodemus comes with ointment. In chapter 19, verse 40, it says, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so here is the community bringing out the best within the Jewish tradition. They seem to understand that our Um, purpose is not to humiliate this one who is sent, but to to show him honor. But even in that, it's a sign of how we deal with the brokenness of the world. It feels futile, doesn't it? That here are crowds shouting at him. He's been beaten up. He's been humiliated. Pontius Pilate knows that he's innocent, but, but in order to bring political order, is willing to crucify him. Everything up until this point is bringing out the worst of humanity. And to do something like honor the person in their burial, it feels like, what does it matter? Why bother? <laughs> Nobody's here to see us place him uh, in this tomb, and so, uh, so why not just give up? Uh, but here's the strange thing. God calls his people that even within this broken world, even if it seems futile, even if it seems it doesn't work, you still do the honorable thing. And so here is a community who are determined to keep the customs of honoring uh, one of their own who died. And and so so you see the signs within a world that feels like it's overwhelmingly dark, that goodness still remains, but it just it doesn't seem to be having its influence. It seems that, that what's problematic is, is just too strong. But the resurrection story is going to turn that around to say, actually, you're undermining the power of what's good, and you're undermining the power to turn things around. Um, but in that, we have Mary. Now, she's not coming here to try to um, necessarily fulfill a commandment to honor somebody else. It seems that she really loved Jesus. She's here as somebody who grieves, and, and in that, her honoring him also is part of this story that despite the misunderstanding of who Jesus is, he was loved. And that's one of the key lessons for John in his gospel, is a God who loves us and an invitation not simply to believe and to follow, but through believing to love God. Mary is a picture of somebody who really loved Jesus. And, and what becomes interesting is when she sees him, when she recognizes him, She is overwhelmed with joy. I mean, if you think of that instant moment that there is Jesus and she doesn't recognize him. And there she is in the dark, confused. Um, This bad story is getting even worse. Where did he go? Why did they take his body? And then the second he calls her and she recognizes him, uh, for her, it's a a restoration. Jesus tells these stories about what's lost being found. We thought we lost you. And who knows how she was taking it in, but in this moment, he's alive. Um, For somebody that would have loved, you could imagine seeing Jesus. It's not that that his body was stolen, it's not that he disappeared, but actually he's still there. Would have overwhelmed her with joy, which makes it seem kind of odd in chapter 20, verse 17, when Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So it's interesting. So here she is so overwhelmed with joy of what she thought she had lost that she wants to take hold of him coming back. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. Now, what's he getting at? You know, there's a number of places throughout the Bible that tells us to cling to God, but lots of warnings not to cling to the things of this world. Uh, We're told to be very careful what we take hold of um, and sometimes it's problematic things that we're warned about, don't be fooled. And sometimes it's good things that we're told, be careful that you don't take hold of it and make it an ultimate thing that you devote yourself to it. Because the nature of this world is everything is passing away, even what's good. So that doesn't mean don't take the good and, and enjoy it. Don't grab onto it and bring it in, but don't cling to it. So in these different categories about clinging, We're warned that there are things that are harmful. And yet the funny thing is about people, we still cling to those things. There are things that we know that are wrong. And a classic example of this would be any of the addictions that we find ourselves unable to let go. Even the more and more that we can see, this is actually destroying my life and those around me. And yet I cling to it. I can't let go. There's something about humanity that we cling to even what's harmful. And then because of that, it becomes dangerous when we cling to something that's good. And so um, achievement and success for many New Yorkers are really important, and the Bible would affirm much of that if God has given you skill and ability. work hard, <laughs> make sacrifices in life, try to do wonderful things. The Bible would encourage a fervent, wisely lived active life. But the warning is but be careful what you cling to uh, there 's something in our city that says we 're not just driven for success but we 're We're holding on to it so tightly that it becomes a religious devotion of of where my identity is and what I will make sacrifices for and who will define my life and my worth. And the warning there is now this good thing. You're holding on to it so tightly that if you needed to let go, could you? Or if you were let go, could you withstand it? And that's when we find our achievement is not simply our using our gifts and taking advantage of the days that we have, but it becomes something that we're holding on to in a way that we should only hold on to God. And so even good things in this life were warned, yeah, take hold of everything that's good, but don't cling to it. Enjoy what's good while it's there, but realize everything has a time and a season and a purpose. But there is what is eternal. Make sure that your hands are clinging to that. In most cases, things are a bit more mixed, where it's not clearly terrible or clearly wonderful, but we have to make choices. But in that, sometimes we get stuck because we're clinging on to some aspect of good and not letting go and being able to grow. So for example, you may have uh, a a relationship where somebody has done something problematic and uh, the right part of you, the just part of you, wants things to be made right. And so you hold to that and that's important. But years could go on and you're holding to the fact that things have not been made right is not causing the other person to make things right. And the the aggravation and the stress that you feel is not being passed on to that other person. And so a principle like justice, this wasn't right, there should be a reconciliation, which is true, but you're holding on to it and clinging to it and it's keeping you from growing and keeping you from moving on. Or perhaps some of us have dreams when we're young. You know, when you're a teenager, you have an imagination for what you can do with your life and then you get older and you look back and and many of those dreams were not realized. And so what do we do as we we go back and we cling to them? It's one thing to remember it fondly and to be thankful for what's good, but sometimes we're holding on that the dream is not going to be realized now. At 60 years old, you're not gonna be in the NBA. So you're not holding on to the possibility. You're holding on to the fact that you wanted it and it didn't come. And so you're not holding on to the possibility of realizing it. You're holding on to the reality that you didn't. And so we're stuck. We're clinging to something in the past that then communicates, I'm a failure. I'm not holding on to a dream that inspired me. So I'm going to find a new dream. I'm holding on to a dream that wasn't realized. And now it's keeping me from growing. When Jesus comes to Mary and says, don't cling to me, he's not correcting her as though she's doing something wrong, she loves him. She's overwhelmed with joy. What he's communicating is right now, Mary, the greatest thing for you in this moment is you thought I was gone, now I'm back. You do not understand how profound this moment is. So God has shown you kindness throughout the ages, God is going to show the whole world kindness. I didn't just come out to return to my disciples so that we could be a small club of people that are thankful for each other. I've come out of the grave to make the whole world new. And there's something so profound that, that don't hold on to me yet. I'm still ascending. You saw my humiliation, and now you see the beginning of my exaltation, the vindication People were wrong. God has declared that Jesus is the true son of God through his resurrection from the dead, but it gets better. So don't cling to me, I'm still ascending. Here, everything in this moment, she probably would have said, if I just could be back and follow you, I will be happy for the remainder of my days. And Jesus says, you don't understand how much better it can be. And that's the part of the Easter hope that we still don't get because we're still clinging to things. There was an episode uh, many years ago in the show Seinfeld, where Kramer, this weird character, buys coffee from a place called Java World, and it's hot and not properly, the lid is not put on, he spills it on himself and he burns himself, so he's going to sue the company. And so we see the... uh, the the attorneys, the council, and the leaders of of Java world trying to uh, come up with what they could persuade him for settlement. So they come up with a huge amount of money that they're gonna give him. And then they promise him free coffee as much as he wants for the rest of his life. So they agree to this and they pull together the meeting and Kramer's there with his legal counsel and they say to him, uh, we wanna settle this. And here's what we're gonna give you. We're gonna give you a lifetime of free coffee. And he gets so excited, he says, I'll take it. And his legal counsel is concerned and and the other legal counsel looks around and they see that he's gonna agree to that and, and that's it. And so the rest of the episode is a very wired, highly anxious person drinking 10 cups of coffee a day, not aware that he was about to be offered a large sum of money. He took hold of something without waiting. And so here's Mary who is so excited, what could be better than Jesus who was humiliated and crucified now alive from the dead and Jesus says, don't cling to me, I'm I'm still ascending. You have no idea what God will do. And so so be patient and wait. And so um, as we move out of this broken world, uh, that portion of the sermon, Jesus enters to our world, enters our world, suffers all of these things. Uh, I want to move into now the Easter message that Jesus came to make all things new that's the story jesus uh, that john is telling it's not simply that jesus was lost and he came back but in his rising um, he's showing us something he's showing us something about god's plans and purposes and and a reality that we don't always see in the world that if you grasp it it is life-giving and if you don't life in this world is impossible to endure and so one of the things we see because of resurrection is there's a continuity and a discontinuity. It's not that, it's important the way the story is told, it's not that they go and the body is still in the tomb, but the spirit of Jesus appears to them. Isn't that wonderful? The world is passing away, the body is passing away, but the, the personality of Jesus is still there. It's a resurrection, they come and the body is gone. Um, but Jesus appears in this body that's the same as it was, and yet it's not the same. He's, he's the person they followed, but something's different. And that's, that's instructive for this world that's being made new, which is that there's something God is doing where certain things about this world, like the violence and the bitterness and these various things will not remain. But what is good in the world will be as things are being made new. And so the Easter story tells the start of that. And so you have Jesus who from the dead arises in his body. And one of the things I want to point out as we look at this is the way John tells the story. Clearly throughout his gospel, he's mindful of Genesis. He's mindful of the story of creation. And now he's wanting to show us that that it's like a new creative moment, that first day of the week, Genesis 1, God says, let there be a light, and there was, and it was good, was the start of the making of all things. Now on the first day of the week, it's the start of the remaking all things, the making of all things new, the restoration. And so uh, there are themes here um, in this story that um, flesh that out, that the more familiar you are with the Bible, the more you can see how God is fulfilling things. And so, for example, uh, Genesis 2 tells a story where God forms humanity. So the first human being, Adam, the name Adam, the word Adam in Hebrew means man, as in mankind or humanity. So in Genesis 2, God forms Adam, humanity from the dust, from the soil of the ground, breathes life into him, making him a living being, and then places him in a garden. The garden was called Eden a fruitful place, a beautiful place in the echoes of human thinking, the paradise of God. And so he, he takes him from the dust, breathes life into him, places him in a garden. And then Genesis three tells the story that rather than loving and trust God, they betrayed God. Um, and, and what happens in turning from God and being deceived, they're driven out of the garden, away from the presence of God, away from the prosperity of that place. And at some point they will breathe their last and they will return to the dust. Those are the words of Genesis three. Genesis two, from the dust you were taken, life was breathed into you and you were placed in a garden. Genesis three ends with now you're going out of the garden, the spirit, your breath will go from you and you will return to the dust. In chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus is taken down from the cross and there was a garden. And that seems to be important because what was Adam's task when he was put in the garden? He is the gardener and to us that may seem like the hired help but in ancient cultures the the epitome of the king the ruler was that that they could bring peace through their army and through the various means through their wisdom if there was prosperity often the ancient palaces had these gardens it was a sign of of a great king who was wise and ordered things and therefore there's always been this echo of of humanity in our prospering in our wisdom in our leadership Um, cultivating things and so in the ancient world cultivating a garden was important in chapter 20 verse 15 when mary doesn't recognize jesus but supposes that he's the gardener there's something there that's actually right he is the gardener he is uh, the one who now came up From the dust the one who was placed in a garden and if you go on and read the very next section a strange thing he gathers with his disciples and then he breathes on them why does he do that he's the one who came up from the ground he's the one who came out of the garden he is the new humanity who then breathes the spirit and has restored what was lost and so as the story is being told, there are these strange details. So in chapter 20, verses five to seven, the grave clothes being left in the tomb is sort of a weird detail. And, And mostly what modern scholars do with it, or modern preachers, is highlight how that helps the case for the resurrection. Meaning, Uh, It's hard to believe that a person was raised from the dead and you carefully pay attention to the details and something like if somebody came to steal the body or if there was to be conspiracy to cover things up, why would anyone bother to take the time to unwrap them? Clearly, people are coming and going in the garden. You wouldn't want to get caught. So if you rolled the, the stone away, wouldn't you take the body and then unwrap him besides the weirdness of who wants to? I could see somebody being like, let's unwrap him first. No, we don't have time. No, it'd be really important to unwrap him. And my thought is, I don't wanna be the one that carries the naked guy. So why don't we just carry him and then you unwrap him wherever we are. So a lot of people making the case for the resurrection would say it wouldn't make sense to have the clothes there. Um, This is not necessarily why that detail is there, but you enter into the narrative Genesis two and three. And Genesis two ends with this picture of wholeness of Adam and Eve, man and woman in the garden, brimming with potential be fruitful multiply in the last line of chapter two is they were naked but they were not ashamed then in genesis three they distrust god and god comes to the garden to visit them as he would and they're hiding in bushes and god says why are you hiding well we're naked how do you know you're naked and adam says the woman that you made gave me fruit and so then they cover themselves up with leaves, ashamed to be in front of one another. Um, their n- nakedness in Genesis two was not a problem. It was, there was a vulnerability. They were themselves, they were human beings. And without shame, that was fine. In Genesis three, suddenly it's not that the nakedness is a problem, it's that, it's that the shame makes everything a problem we see differently. Now we judge, now we're self-conscious. So they cover themselves up with leaves. It's a sign of their hiding, it's a sign of what gets brought uh, with them into this world. The grave clothes being left in the tomb raises an odd question of, was Jesus wearing any clothes himself? And it's a question that the passage is not particularly concerned to answer as though he would have these white robes, there's something of his glory, but the interesting thing is that it's a non-issue. And this is part of the discontinuity and the continuity. What comes into the new world? Well, it's the body that God gave him. But what didn't come in to the new world is the shame that we carry in our bodies. And so here he is as the new Adam, the new humanity, the gardener who is now going to make this world new by cultivating it. How does the new man treat women? Well, Adam, instead of saying, You commanded me not to eat of the fruit and I took it. And that's why I'm naked and ashamed and how I know it. He says, the woman that you gave me, Uh, he blames her. And Jesus now, Mary is the one who discovers that the tomb is empty. She tells Peter and John and they run to the tomb, but then they leave. Jesus, the new humanity, the one who comes leaving the old, the clothes of death behind now gives her a commission. Mary, don't cling to me, but go and tell the brothers that I'm ascending to my God and their God, to my father and their father. The first gospel messenger, the first one who is entrusted to proclaim that he is alive uh, was Mary. And there's something there in the story that we're seeing that that Jesus is slowly making things new. There's there's echoes that, that the world is now different. People are being changed, there's a a, a different pattern set before us. And so when you look at these details, here's another odd detail. If you're familiar with the idea of the tabernacle, so in the book of Exodus, after God's people come out of Egypt, out of their slavery, um, they're told to build a tent that was called the tent of the meeting. And the directions in the book of Exodus have signs that over the years, most scholars have said, it sounds like they're building something like Eden on earth there's meant to be trees and there's meant to be water and there's meant to be these places but what's odd is uh, there's a there's a place that only god can be and the rest of the the people have to remain outside of it and in that there is what's called the ark of the covenant it has the 10 commandments in it and over time some other things but there's a lid on it called the mercy seat with two angels and moses was the only one who can go in go behind that tent and it said he met face to face with God, that's the description. That there he was with these mediators, these two angels, and he met before him. Um, but eventually, in, if you go to Leviticus, there's a day of atonement, uh, where, where the, the pattern in the annual story is that though we're alienated from God and though we die, God provides a substitute so that that if God's people, year by year, remember that this is a world of death, but if they sacrifice an animal, then when they bring the blood once a year into that holy place that they otherwise can't go and sprinkle the blood on what's called the mercy seat between these two angels, that will be a sign that one day God will forgive you by not requiring death of you. And so that story is woven in that that once a year, a priest went and he splattered blood between these two angels on that ark where God was uniquely present with his people. And I don't know if that's exactly why John tells it this way, but in verse 12 of chapter 20, Mary looks in and she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And if she's not intentionally telling us this, he's saying, do you realize that that when Jesus laid down his life, uh, what you've been doing for years has now been realized. We know that sacrificing a bull doesn't create a substitute for you, but it's something that God is showing of how he will bring forgiveness, that one day God himself, he will enter in, he will suffer the death. And so Jesus' body is placed in a tomb after saying, it is finished. And now this becomes the meeting place with God, that, that these two cherubs, these two angels, who remain, his body is gone. The tomb is opened up as if to say the the way to death is now open, the way to the garden is now open. And so Jesus says, if you follow me, you do not have to walk in darkness and suffer death, but I will show you the light of life. And so in John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know me, they hear my voice. There's Mary in the darkness thinking it's the gardener. She's overwhelmed with grief, she's confused. And in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, it's as she hears his voice, that's how she recognizes him. She doesn't recognize this new creation, this new Adam, but she knows the voice. And that's what John has been showing all along where Jesus has been saying, my sheep know my voice. So he comes and he calls us. He doesn't appear to us each in bodily form. We shouldn't cling to that because he's ascended to heaven, but he sends the spirit and he calls us. So by name, each of us have an invitation, receive life, follow him. And so I think what would be helpful to think about this Easter, um, one of the things that I think goes by that we, we miss with all of the important details in this passage is in verse 17, when Jesus says to Mary, now go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. We don't realize the profound change. Without John, he speaks about his father, he speaks about his God, but he speaks about alienation and separation and our being lost and not finding the way. Jesus suffers death, he comes to the other side, and now he says, this is the message. Go and tell my brothers, this is my family, this is John who will write this gospel, this is Mark, this is Peter, those who would be appointed to be the messengers, Mary, go and tell them that I'm ascending to my God and to your God. To my father and to your father. And so Adam, who was in some ways literally the son of God, without mother or father, but created immediately. And we and Adam, who don't know God as a father, but as something up there, Jesus has come as the true son of God. And he says, because of what I've done, my God is now your God. And don't miss this. My father is your father. And that's the life-giving reality that in John 1, he says he gave us the right to become children of God, not born of the flesh or born of the will, but born of the spirit. And so Nicodemus in John 3 comes to him at night, and he says, you cannot receive the kingdom of God unless you have been born from above. And Jesus comes out of the the grave, uh, new life, new birth, and he says, now go and tell my followers, (laughs) that I'm ascending to my God and my Father, and they are now your God and your Father. Now, how is this helpful? How does that give life to us, to know that there's not just a God somewhere out there, but there's a Father who loves us, who is a giver of life, who calls us to to know him? Jesus, in chapter 16 of John, is preparing his disciples for this confusing moment. And he says to them that, well, he says a number of things. I'm gonna read verses 32 and 33. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Jesus is there with his most devoted people, and he's saying, when they come to arrest me, you're gonna scatter You're going to leave me. It's going to appear to the world as though I've been abandoned and I've gone to the cross alone. But my father is with me. And therefore, I will face evil. I will not be intimidated. I will do what's right and what's faithful. And so because the father is with him, he goes on trusting that if he lays down his life, the father's promise to take it back up will be fulfilled. And so how could he go with the message to people that abandon him at his highest at his moment of greatest need and say, tell my brothers. (laughs) Why does he not come with a warning of correction? The father is with him. And so he doesn't depend on their approval, on their faithfulness. He depends on the love and the presence of the father. And therefore he's able to go back to his failing people and still love them. And when Jesus says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, he's saying, you can have this life-giving reality. You are not alone in the world. You may not see God with your eyes, but that doesn't mean God is not there. Something has come between you, but, but God has sent Jesus to take away whatever is alienating you from God. And if God is with you, that can radically change things because, yes, you are called not to give in to the corruption, the discouragement, to the ways of this world, but you're called to be a light, you're called to thrive, you're called to do what's good, even if it doesn't seem like it's working. How do you do it? God is your father, and if he's with you and you're not alone, you have that strength, that power, that resurrection life to keep going. And how do you take those friends that weren't there when you needed them? And you go back and say, but, but I wasn't alone because God was with me, and therefore the love of God is in me. I, I have the strength and the power to now do what is required to talk to you and make reconciliation." The life-giving principle, Jesus says, don't cling to me because I'm ascending, because when I ascend, it's not simply that you, Mary, get me back, but I will pour out my spirit so that the whole world can know the Father. And if the Father is with you, you are not alone. And so part of that Easter power is that the world still has darkness, it still has suffering, it still has brokenness. But the question is, is God real? Is God with you? Will love win? Will the resurrection uh, outweigh death? Is there something on the other side? And if that's the case, well, then you are not alone, but you have the power of God, the life-giving power of the Creator who will sustain you. And there's a story um, about a woman named Florence Chadwick, who is a swimmer, and she was going to swim, this was in 1952, she was going to swim from the coast of California to Catalina Island, something like 22, 26 miles, a great distance. And uh, the day that she was going to swim, it was quite a foggy day, and she had uh, a team with her, uh, at least one boat or if not a couple of boats her mother was part of that and they were going to row next to her just if if 15 miles in uh she ran out of breath she needed to make sure there was safety Um, so 15 hours into the swim she's overwhelmed and exhausted she says i can't go on and they say keep going you can do it but because of the fog she couldn't see 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 the shore she went an additional 55 minutes And then said, I can't do it. And they said, sure you can. And she said, I can't. And she didn't see the shore. So she got in the boat. And uh, as it turned out, she was about a half mile from the shore. She just didn't see it. So in an interview the next day, she says, if I knew that the shore was right there, I could have kept going. But she didn't know. And so there was everyone who loved her, everyone who cared for her. And they were saying, keep going. You could keep going. And she realized, I can't. Um... Most of the way that we approach religion or self-help is we wanna tell each other, you can keep going. And that helps, that helps us push on, but but sometimes it seems like there's no end in sight, so we just wanna give up. The Christian message is different about Jesus coming into the world to call us to follow him. If, If Chadwick's mother had come from a boat from Catalina Island and said, you can keep going, and she said, I can't, and she said, you're only a half a mile away, you don't see it, but I was just there. Chadwick seems to indicate she could have kept going. And that's the Christian story. Now, not that God is giving us a pep talk or a set of commandments, but but Jesus has come from the Father to call us. And he goes through death and he says, you can face all of the difficulties of this world because the life-giving power of God uh, will endure. So the hope of Christianity is not that you will cling to me. Don't do that. The hope is that I will cling to you. I have come into the world and I have faced death and now I'm coming and calling you and I'm taking hold of you and if you come with me, you're gonna be discouraged. You're gonna feel like you're failing but I'm telling you you can do it not because you are strong but because now my father is your father and my father did not abandon me but brought me out on the other side. Do you believe that the same father, the same love is the love that's extended to you? And Jesus says, if you were in me, than you are in the Father. And so that potential that the resurrection gives transforms things. So we start to view life differently. That teenage dream, that broken off peace that was not realized. That the only thing we could do is say, don't cling to it. Can I forget it? Because that's a reminder of what I will never be, but that I've failed. Um, in the new age, we don't forget who we were. We don't forget our life stories, but we don't bring our shame in with us. And so you don't need to forget that your dream wasn't realized, which communicates that you're a failure. You need to forget the concept of being a failure because you couldn't do everything is a problematic way of thinking. It's the way that the world thinks. And so is it possible that in your story, you're the same person who had dreams, who worked hard and who you are today, you may find that God has used that experience to make you do something better that you do not yet know that's life giving power. The old way is just to cling to everything in desperation. And Jesus is saying, it's not that you're spiritual, immaterial people. It's not that you no longer have desires. It's, it's that there's a transformation that we're letting go of the old, the world with all of its darkness, its trouble, its bitterness, its envy, its greed, its lust, all of the things that are destroying us. Don't cling to the things of this world, but the Father has sent me to take hold of you and, and follow me, listen, keep following, and the life of God will slowly over time be transformative of you. And so until next Easter, here's, here's something that you should think about. If Jesus is alive, if his God and Father has become your God and Father, it means you're not alone. Spend a year practicing. If I am not alone, if the Father who raised Jesus from the dead will be with me in what I face, how will that change my outlook, my energy, my goals, my desires? Try that out and see if the life of Christ gives you power and strength to be light in this world. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are here another year, remembering Jesus is alive from the dead, another year where we, by May, forget the power of the resurrection. We get bogged down with our discouragement, we form our old patterns and habits. Help us to remember this year, by the grace of your spirit, this new life. Word for any here who Uh, feels like they're in darkness, open their eyes, that they would see your glorious light. For those who are struggling, feeling like they're failing, Lord, give them power to press on. And for any of us who are clinging to the things of the world, Lord, um, give us that wisdom that we would take hold of the gospel and that we would trust not in ourselves or what we can achieve or what we can grasp, but we would trust in you who have come to call us so that the life-giving work of the Spirit would be at work in our lives and through us, through us as a community, we would find that we're doing the task of following Jesus in being a light to the nations. Do that work by your grace and in your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.